Conversations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and the content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. giving you this little intro prior to posting the next series we do, which is on the subject of trauma. Uh, Trauma, for me, for many years, was physical trauma. So you have a car wreck at high speed, you, uh, whether you're restrained or not, uh, certainly if you're unrestrained, you suffer from trauma, polytrauma. I'm talking about, you know, the fractured spleen, the the contused ribs and heart, the the, the you know the broken arm, the 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 concussion off the steering wheel, or the 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 burns of the face from the airbag deploying, that sort of thing. When we talk about trauma, we're talking about psycho-emotional trauma. And I'm going to tell you something that re- requires a little caveat. This is a controversial topic. Some people think it's overplayed. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not one of those people necessarily. Um, and some people think that it's not given enough, enough credit. And when we, when we listen, we will be listening to Lori and Jennifer and they'll give you their credentials, but they're both social workers. You need to understand that within the realm of behavioral health, there are very, uh, there's a variety of people that a person getting care in a behavioral health context will receive care from. They can be psychiatrists, obviously. These are medical doctors that have specialized in the field of psychiatry. Uh, they could be psychologists. These are typically non-physician doctors of psychology that are uh, trained in the you know diagnosis and assessment of various behavioral health conditions. Um, there are licensed clinical social workers, people who are trained in the field of social work, but then go into roles that are very much like that of a psychologist. Then there are uh, a group of people called counselors, and counselors are similar to clinical social workers and psychologists. There's a few variations. But in a given course of treatment for the behavioral health issue, a patient may talk to one or more of these different disciplines to work through their particular need. Psychiatrists have traditionally been associated with the medical treatment, that is uh, therapeutic medication, electroconvulsive therapy, that sort of thing, of patients. Psychologists don't do um, uh, therapeutic interventions of the kind that are uh, such like ECT or pharmacology. They do interventions. Um, there's a, there's uh, desensitization therapies and other things they do, but they're not giving medications and they're not, you know, uh, inducing seizures for the treatment of uh, profound uh, debilitating depression as they, as psychiatrists do with ECT. It's a whole different topic. I'll just tell you this. I think we've talked about ECT with Dr. Jamrose in the back, uh, in the background of rotations, um, back episodes, but, um, it is life-saving for some people who have, um, certain uh, forms of depression that are that are debilitating and life-threatening actually because of suicidality etc but we're not talking about that we're talking about trauma and trauma in the psycho-emotional context is uh, something that is formative and so i tell you that ahead of time so when you're you're thinking about this you don't come at it like i did which was spending a, quite a long time trying to get your head around what do you mean by trauma 
um, because trauma can mean a lot of different things. And it, in this case, does not mean um, a car wreck. It means, among many other things, um, the, the mental impact of, I don't know where my next meal is coming from as a child. I don't have the security of parents that I know will look after me. I don't know, I don't, I don't know, I, I've grown up in a home where I've seen abuse modeled day after day after day after day. And what that does to the growing brain and the formulating brain. What's really funny about trauma to me is that trauma can be protective. Um, we had a discussion uh, about looking at trauma as a factor uh, in the military for screening. And I talked to one of the chief uh, consultants for psychiatry in the Army, um, who is, in fact, a soldier themselves, and as well as a psychiatrist. And I said, well, why don't we screen more aggressively for these sorts of things prior to letting someone in the military? And the curious thing is, is that if you survive trauma as a child and make it into adulthood and you're able to successfully adapt to um, adult things, meaning disciplined, I'll show up when I'm supposed to for my work, I, I have appropriate grooming habits and I, I, I model the, let's just use the context of the military, I model uh, a uniformed appearance and I do my job well. In that group of people, trauma uh, creates a resiliency that allows people to actually survive combat uh, because they have suffered things in childhood and survived them. And so they end up becoming more uh, capable of surviving things as adults. I know that's a weird concept. And, and again, I don't want to invite a whole bunch of uh, criticism because I'm going to tell you that all these things are controversial and I don't have all the answers. But when you listen to our discussion about trauma, um, I, I encourage you to just keep an open mind and just listen to what's being said and try to see, well, how would I apply this in a clinical context? Where, how sensitive should I be to be thinking about this? And what should I do when I'm just not quite sure where to go with this? Um, if a person suffered quite a lot, if that is in fact keeping them from achieving success in behavioral health and becoming a more functional person, at least knowing that maybe you can refer them to someone who has a better command of how trauma affects later life or even in childhood treatment uh, for behavioral health, how to deal with that. If anything, it's maybe more sensitive to the fact that I'm not an expert in the rehabilitation of people who are suffering from profound behavioral health problems. I'm a person that can be alongside and be an advocate for them, but I'm not a person that's particularly skilled or uh, adept at being effective at treating those problems. That's not my area of expertise. Okay, so with that, um, I plan on doing specialty spotlight. We're, we're delayed on specialty spotlight. We did uh, John Bashar as a pulmonologist recently, but just so you know, I've got an ophthalmologist and a, a pediatrician that are coming up. So those of you who are listening who want to hear about those specialties, we'll get into that. And of course, with a bit of a COVID flare. And the last thing I want to talk about, uh, and I hope, by the way, to start the trauma series in a day or so, I'm going to try to get this up today. Um, I would say that school is starting, and we have had a commensurate decrease in the um, internet speeds, and I'm thankful for that. Um, keep in mind that the adaptation to COVID-19 is one very much a regional community thing. Communities in Florida are not communities in California, are not communities in Montana, are not communities in Ohio. And communities in Ohio aren't communities in Ohio necessarily. The community of, of Southeast Ohio, Athens, is not the same as the community in Wood County, Ohio, Toledo. 
okay, or, or Bowling Green, rather. Um, it, uh, I, I don't think, I'm not sure if Toledo's in Wood County. I think actually, I know Bowling Green is. I'm just not sure Toledo is. But either way, you know what I'm saying? Not all one size fits all. Okay, so the fact that out in rural Athens, Athens County, Ohio, the internet bandwidth is dropping, right? Or I guess the bandwidth's the same, but the utilization's increasing. That my internet's slow means there's probably kids trying to do homework, and I'm happy about that. I'd like to have better bandwidth. On my other endeavor, which is video, uh, a few minutes with Todd, um, I'm going to talk today about my concern long-term for the asymptomatic COVID case. COVID-19, it turns out, in a paper that came out in the Annals of Internal Medicine from uh, Dr. Daniel Oran and Dr. Eric Topol, and you've probably heard of Eric Topol before. He's on Scripps in uh, California. He used to be at the Cleveland Clinic. You can Google all that and find out why Eric is no longer at the Cleveland Clinic. But um, anyway, long story short, these two guys get together and do a little bit of a retrospective study that showed up in the Annals of Internal Medicine. I think this was uh, from June, early June, and talks about what the asymptomatic prevalence of SARS-CoV-2 is, and it's about 40 to 45% with higher rates in some contexts, uh, but it averages out to about that. And they talk about Iceland and Italy and the USS Theodore Roosevelt uh, prisons. And the reason why that's important to me is the context of, of heart disease. SARS-CoV-2, if nothing else, I think will be thought of as not a respiratory illness, but a vascular disease. I think as time goes on, we're going to appreciate it. Yes, it does. The, the, the SARS-CoV-2 likes to find the ACE receptor, um, which is found predominantly in the lung, but it's found in a lot of other tissues too. And what SARS-CoV-2 really does is it causes the so-called cytokine storm. Dr. Bashar talked about that. And it has particular effects in anything that involves the vascular system. Well, your heart is the basically the single major point of the vascular system. And because of that, I have particular concerns about what happens to young people uh, with SARS-CoV-2 for their lifetime. Um, and it's coming out. And so I'm going to talk today in a few minutes with Todd about um, these two JAMA uh, papers. One's uh, just a little short communication. It's the editorial that came out that's talking in late July, July, th July 31st, uh, 2020, um, that is talking about um, cardiomyopathy and myocarditis. And it is true that you're more likely to have that problem with a severe uh, COVID-19 infection. It's much less common in asymptomatic patients. But what I'm curious about, and only time will tell because you can't rush this, we have to have time, is what happens to that asymptomatic group of young people over a year? Are we gonna see an increased rate of cardiomyopathy um, and actual permanent cardiac damage because of the effect of SARS-CoV-2 on the cardiovascular system, specifically the heart. And so one of the projects I'm working on on the side right now is doing a draft proposal for part of the United States military about how do you get a highly athletic population that's had SARS-CoV-2 safely back into athletics. I think you're going to see... Um, and I'm, it's just a draft. It's nothing earth shattering or significant, but a friend of mine who's in charge of some of this stuff said, send me a draft of what you think we should be doing. But I mean, there's a real concern here. How soon should a, uh, an athletic person go back to athletics after a SARS-CoV-2 infection? You know, right now the, the rule of thumb is about two weeks sit out. And if there's anything more than, than, uh, mild symptoms, 
and any symptoms during return to play, they probably do need a cardiac assessment. And that would be with an echocardiogram, an EKG, and cardiac enzymes. Uh, and possibly, in the extreme cases, cardiac uh, MRI. Um, and this is emerging, emerging research because there are going to be young people that get this disease that spend a lifetime with disability. Um, there will be heart transplants. There will be other things that occur for a group of people, and I hope it's not a big one, but I think it's going to be more, bigger than we would like uh, because they got a COVID-19 infection. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. I'll bring the papers up, and if you find a few minutes with Todd, um, you can see the references to that. So with that, I'm going to shut this off. I'm going to post it uh, very quickly, and then I'm going to uh, get to work editing two things. One, a video, and two, the beginning of the series on trauma that I recorded with um, uh, Lori and Jennifer. And uh, I hope you like them. And then shortly thereafter, you'll, you'll hear some specialty spotlight stuff. So with that, have a great afternoon, and uh, go find something that's righteous and wonderful to focus on so that COVID doesn't harsh your mellow. Take care. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of the Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we sometimes pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators. You must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by tweeting us at Medical Cinema for Todd, at Prof Plow for Brian, Nisarg Bakshi for Nisarg Bakshi, and at Rotations PCAST, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations. Check us out on Facebook at Media and Medicine. And finally, for me, Todd Fredericks, you can also send me a message through my Facebook page at TR Fredericks. But please, I have a sensitive feelings, so embrace your inner non-hater.